Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Feminist foreign policy is, is hugely important, right? And it comes out of the women, peace and security agenda. And it should suggest an alternative way of bringing peace and security. This communication about why women, peace and security matters needs to continue so that it's not just sort of a, a, a niche setting of those involved in the peace and security conversation, but we see that conversation happening more broadly. You're listening to the National Security Podcast the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Gay Brotman, Distinguished Advisor with the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by Lisa Sharland, Senior Fellow and Director of the Protecting Civilians Human Security Program at the Stimson Centre in Washington. Hello, Lisa. It's great to be with you, Gay. And also Jackie True, Professor of International Relations and Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Welcome, Jackie. Hello, Gay, and hi to Lisa. Yeah, it's great to have you both on board, Lisa from Washington and Jackie from Melbourne. Thank you so much for being here today. Now, the landmark United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325 is now nearly 23 years old. The resolution is the key women, peace and security framework that advocates for the rights of women and girls during conflict and crisis, and also outlines the importance of integrating gender perspectives into conflict prevention and resolution, peace building and disaster and crisis responses. So 23 years on, where are we at? Uh, Particularly after what we've witnessed in Afghanistan and Iran and Ukraine in recent years, what has really changed for women and girls? What has that landmark resolution and the many since then really achieved? And who really knows about the Women, Peace and Security Framework anyway? So first, I'd like to go to you, uh, Lisa. What is the Women, Peace and Security Agenda? How did it come about and why? And what was it designed to do? That's a really good question, Gabe. I, as with many things, I think you mentioned there that it's been 23 years since the adoption of, of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And we're already starting to see sort of murmurs, conversations in New York and elsewhere that we're approaching the 25th anniversary soon. And sort of how do we assess the progress that has been made? And what does that look like against the backdrop of, of what we're seeing in, in certain country contexts at the moment? I think there's a couple of things that are important to note. Um, the adoption of that resolution wasn't the beginning. It was really the culmination of decades of advocacy by civil society organisations to get this issue uh, recognised, I think, by those that hold seats of power 
that this is something that is relevant to matters of international peace and security. So the adoption of the first thematic Women, Peace and Security resolution uh, by the Security Council was a reflection of the fact that women's participation in peace processes, in politics, uh, their role in conflict prevention, uh, their protection, uh, upholding their human rights, that these things matter when it comes to the maintenance of international peace and security and that they deserve a seat at the table just as much as conversations around nuclear non-proliferation, um, around the outbreak of war, um, around sanctions regimes, around all these sorts of issues that the council considers within its domain. Uh, and so I think that in many ways is why it was so landmark. Uh, and it has seen since then, I think you've had the adoption of nine further resolutions that have sort of developed this normative framework, so to speak, um, to outline what countries can do, what organisations can do um, to take forward some of those things to improve the situation, not just for women and girls, um, but for, for, for all those um, across the globe um, in terms of peace and security. Um, so I, I think that's something that will be worthy to reflect on and there's a lot of work that still needs to be done but progress that has been made over the last 23 years or so. So just in terms of those civil groups that had been advocating for years, I mean, how long had they been mobilised and how long were they calling for action on this? I think you could go back as far, and I'll let Jackie step in here and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but certainly back as far as World War One. you know, when you've around the time where you saw sort of the establishment and the um, organisation of groups like the Women's International um, League for Peace and Freedom, um, a lot of these civil society organisations had their roots in the prevention of conflict, the prevention of war, um, the idea that, you know, we... We don't want to see this repeated again. Um, so it had been decades' worth of advocacy that really brought this to the fore in the Security Council. Jackie, and your thoughts on on why it came about and that, that history and the fact that it had been, as you say, decades in the making. Yes, yes, and I think it, uh, Lisa's exactly right there. I mean, I often talk about a, a century of international relations feminism before you get Resolution 1325. Um, and I think what's really significant is, um, you know, for most of the 20th century, women are outside of institutions, right? Like they have a very marginal role in state uh, institutions, foreign policy institutions and the multilateral institutions. Um, and what occurred during World War One was the, the joining up of women's peace activism across the, the United States and Europe. Um, and, and those women actually going around and, and talking to soldiers and their families about, you know, alternative ways to resolve conflict, especially through, um, dispute resolution and the, and the role of international law. And the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom had a peace conference in The Hague in 1915. And they came up with 20, a 20 point plan, like a series of principles, which actually are very similar in many regards to the principles underlying resolution 1325 today. And, uh, some would say, I mean, they were able to meet Woodrow Wilson. They strongly influenced his, uh, 20 point plan, uh, that led to the, toward the, the League of Nations in the 1930s. So, um, but they were coming from outside, you know, the outsiders and they, it's even to get, uh, women did not have citizenship and even to get a meeting with a world leader at that time it's was, you know incredibly difficult in fact some countries including France at the time um actually interned the women in prison to prevent them from joining you know meeting with their British counterparts so um it's quite incredible when you think about how women's political and public voice on peace and security issues 
was treated a century ago compared to now. So I do think it's a it's a long revolution and it's hard won. And so therefore, even if we are pro, you know getting close to twenty five years and we expect more action and more progress, we we have to remember that we are actually uh, challenging. Uh, a state system where you know which is operating you know according to you know quite narrow narrow self interests of states and that the efforts to bring about uh, attention to prevention of conflict the collective interests of states is actually you know it's actually something that um, is very difficult and has has evolved and is evolving um, over a long period of time and, and just the tenacity of those civil society organisations over all those decades, it, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, because quite often, particularly if you're if you're interned or if uh, if there is significant resistance, it all just becomes too hard. But just the fact that they stayed on it is is an extraordinary achievement, and and that's why it is such a landmark resolution. Yes, exactly, Gay. And if you think about the multiplication of civil society organisations uh, and movements around recognising. Um, women's experiences of war mm. and the roles that women can play uh, in brokering peace and sustaining peace um, and the fact that countries that have uh, really significant gender inequalities and gender hierarchies, you know, where men make war and men make the decisions about peace, um, those are countries which are much less stable. Um, they're much more more likely to um, to continue to go to war, to to um, have high levels of uh, uh, civil war and and violence, um, and and also not to grow and prosper, right, and and therefore to be able to you know benefit all of their citizens. So, I think um, you know for all of those reasons, um, you know that recognizing women's agency mm. and and mm. their role alongside men. Um, and sustaining peace is, is, is a really critical ingredient. And we know that societies that have recognised that uh, actually fare much better uh, than societies that don't. So I'm hoping we can speak about some of those societies that don't because uh, they, they represent massive threats uh, to international security and, and to all of our future. So just before we move on to that in terms of what's worked and what hasn't, and uh, I, I just you mentioned those 20 pillars that uh, that were existed sort of the were part of the original plan decades ago. It's we've now got the four pillars underpinning the agenda. Jackie, can you just outline each of those and the purpose of them? Yes, absolutely. So the, 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 the four main pillars of, um, the women, peace and security agenda, three of them are P's. So they're easy to remember. So first is the kind of, um, protection, um, gender in- inclusive protection. And, and I think, um, you know, Lisa's obviously works on civilian protection, but until recently, we didn't have the recognition of sexual and gender based violence, which particularly, you know, it affects all people, women, men, boys and girls and others, but um, but it has had a particular impact on women um, in the context of conflict. Um, and that type of violence was not recognised or responded to until recently. And I think that's a very significant aspect of the women, peace and security agenda, the way in which states, and we can see this now with Russia, uses uh, sexual violence and all types of sexual violence, uh, you know, from kidnapping, abduction, rape, 
um, strip searching, all of that to shame not just individuals but, in fact, the groups from which they come. So that kind of gender-inclusive protection of civilians is really significant and and securing women's human rights is, is integral to that. Participation, inclusive participation, uh, and representation of women in peace and security processes uh, and decisions. That's really critical, uh, especially, you know, where, you know, having a voice, especially in, in say, a conflict uh, settlement or a post-conflict situation, you know, having a voice in the, uh, you know, in that um, the establishment of institutions for that future society is really crucial um, to, to building a more, uh, you know, a, a more uh, equal um, and lasting peace. Um, the relief and recovery relates to that, and that's the third pillar. And that's a really important pillar because that is probably the humanitarian peace-building pillar. It's about building back better, but it can be building back better not only from conflict but also from disasters, um, you know, from pandemics. Um, and there I think that's really important economic dimension, the importance of, um, you know, there the economic empowerment of women uh, and their involvement in that rebuilding phase. Uh, and then fourthly, so I said protect, prevention of conflict. And that I think is the, is, is really key. It's not prevention of gender-based violence. It's prevention of conflict. And that's where the women's peace movement going back to World War One started. It's about how we anticipate, uh, early warn, um, risks, you know, within society that might, uh, you know, lead them into conflict and how we work on, you know, the foundations, uh, you know, promoting more inclusive and equal societies um, that can prevent, uh, you know, and resolve conflict in, in, in peaceful ways. So I think that's really critical. And that also linked early on, that link to disarmament, uh, actually, and to addressing the arms um, trade uh, and the arms race, which I think is something that is not so salient in the women, peace and security agenda until recently, but is something that will be uh, very important in the future as we see um, this you know, inc- increasing uh, really uh, arms race um, within and among states. Yeah. So Jackie's outlined the original ambition, which is articulated through those four pillars, Lisa. What actual changes, what tangible changes have been made over the last 23 years? What's worked and what hasn't? I think first and foremost, it's recognition uh, that you're seeing, particularly at the state level, that this is something that needs to be considered. a number of countries have put their hands up. They want to be seen as leaders and advocates on women, peace and security. For instance, if you look at the group of friends on women, peace and security in New York, so this is a coalition of, of member states within the UN setting in New York. It's chaired by Canada. Um, it currently has 65 members representing all five regional groups within the UN and the European Union. Uh, so you see here that there, there is a desire by a number of member states to be seen as supporters advocates um, of this agenda. I think you've also seen that the the normative thinking on this issue has advanced. So we've seen that through uh, not only the adoption of the the sort of suite of 10 Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security, but the way that that has filtered down into a lot of the other work that the Security Council does. So it now has an informal expert group 
on women, peace and security that will meet amongst the council members. They'll receive briefings on different country situations and contexts with the idea that this will then feed into uh, wider briefings around what might be happening in South Sudan or Afghanistan or what's taking place in Mali at the moment and what considerations need to be taken on board when it comes to women, peace and security. So I think that's an evolution that you've seen over the last two decades. And you've also seen, I think, at the national and the regional level, um, this idea that member states and regional and sub-regional bodies have sort of made political commitments as to what they are going to do to implement the women, peace and security agenda. And they've done that through what they've called national action plans. Uh, so I believe at the moment the, the count is around about 104 member states that have developed national action plans. Um, now, I should note that a number of those don't necessarily have the underpinning framework in terms of funding and accountability and all these things, so they may be largely political statements. Uh, however, you have seen uh, a number of countries go through multiple iterations of they might be on their, their fourth or their fifth national action plan at the moment. And so that is really intended to guide the way that a country goes about implementing this in terms of um, their, their foreign policy and a range of sort of um, other policies in terms of how it fits in within the women, peace and security agenda. Uh, Australia, for instance, is currently on its second second national action plan on, on women, peace and security. Um, and I think similarly, you know, when you then get into a conversation around feminist foreign policies and, and a range of other tools that member states have started to develop to, to implement these things that are filtered down from the Security Council. Now, a lot of that is normative. Um, and I think that the question here is what does that actually look like in terms of outcomes and tangible actions on the ground? Uh, and that's where it becomes a little bit more challenging. We have seen increases in the number of women, for instance, participating in some of the peace processes that have been undertaken. Um, we have seen, for instance, in some of the deployment of, of peacekeeping operations or deployment of humanitarian assistance um, sort of operations, an increase in not necessarily not only the number of women necessarily engaged in those processes, but also the application of what we might call a, a gender lens or gender responsiveness in the way that they go about those approaches. Um, so there's a range of different things that we can point to that suggest there's been some progress in taking forward some aspects of the women, peace and security agenda. But one of the challenges that we continue to face is sort of how do we continue to measure that and monitor it um, and sort of apply those lessons to what we continue to do going forward. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey ladies, ever thought about studying national security but talked yourself out of it? Well, I'm here to talk you back into it. This year, in partnership with the National Intelligence Community, we'll be offering several women the opportunity to complete the Master of National Security Policy fee-free. Our degree is the only one of its kind in Australia and tailored to you. Follow the link in the show notes for more information. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia.
So just in terms of sort of the, the, the going forward, as you mentioned, Lisa, so 23 years on, we've got this infrastructure in place. We've got this normative framework, as you mentioned. We've got 104 countries signed up to the national action plans. Uh, we are still searching for measurement in some way in terms of how these uh, these action plans are actually implemented and whether they're effective. But what more does the international community need to do um, at the multilateral level, at the minilateral level? And where does Australia need to focus its attention? What more needs to be done here? Jackie, I'll go first to you if you want to talk about what needs to be done at the international level and secondly at the Australian, here in Australia, and then to you, Lisa. Yeah, thanks, Gay. Um, I mean, I think Lisa made some really good points there. And I just, in terms of what more needs to be done at the international level, just to to pick up a key point she made there about the informal experts group, which um, which enables the Security Council members to be informed um, by those who, by organisations and experts who are working on the ground and are sensitive to the kinds of um, uh, violence that particularly women are experiencing, the kind of, uh, you know, exclusion and marginalization that they might be experiencing that the Security Council should know about and be able to, to respond to uh, through peacekeeping operations, um, and other mechanisms. But I think, you know, there what's been quite important as well is, is the use of the ARIA formula meetings in the Security Council, which has meant that, um, those who are most impacted by conflict have been able to brief the council directly. And so women's human rights defenders have come to New York and talked about uh, those experiences and the kind of violence and the kind of work that they're trying to do to to prevent conflict. Um, and so, but that's just the global level, right? And that's just the international level. And, and I think the real challenge is that Lisa has pointed to is, is you know you know how what what can be done in those situations, um, and I think that um, we really do have quite a quagmire at present. Where um, I just you know note that um, you know we've we've had uh, you know international interventions um, partly justified to promote women's rights and security, notably pointing to the twenty year intervention in Afghanistan. Um, which has, uh, you know, which the United States effectively abandoned when Donald Trump made a deal with the Taliban um, and has basically left women to a very severe, restrictive gender apartheid regime. And you could say, well, that's just Afghanistan, that's just one country, but that's actually hugely destabilizing for international security because that basically says that countries that w- would actually be able to protect women's rights and security and and also prevent conflict and terrorism um, can't actually do that and won't actually stay the distance and that women will pay the price. And so mm, mm. hello to all you dictators and regimes out there. You could do the same. So we could have, you know, really literally a domino effect, uh, not just in that region, because I'm sure Iran is very interested. Uh, you know, Myanmar is looking at that, North Korea, Russia, definitely emboldened by the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think that, um, 
you know, the, the, the lack of teeth for the women, peace and security agenda uh, is, is, is the bottom line here. Um, and um, not to say, you know, that the lack of teeth for the UN, obviously the UN only has um, its uh, Security Council and its, uh, its mandates uh, for peace operations, um, but there's real limitations at the international level to sticking with the Security Council. And I think one of the things that we have seen with the Women, Peace and Security Agenda is its expansion to other institutions. Um, so we do have other multilateral institutions, um, you know, obviously NATO, uh, OSCE, um, and, uh, you know, including the regional organizations, even ASEAN in our region has now picked up the Women, Peace and Security Agenda um, and developing their own frameworks there. So I think that's that's very important. But I think building on what has been done in terms of bringing in those most ex- impacted by conflict, um, you know, to brief uh, leaders uh, and key decision makers is that we actually need to build the mechanisms for civil society to, re- to respond, not just in a multilateral way, but in a bilateral way. And I'd like to say here that I think the role of diaspora communities um, in, uh, in foreign policy and international security is, is very something we really need to consider because often when we have these situations where, you know, like going to Australia, we are no longer present in Afghanistan. Yes. So what do we do to actually respond to the security issues there um, mm. and to the basic fundamental right uh, abrogations there? So... The role of our civil society is very important, not just our civil society in monitoring our national action plan on women, peace and security, but the way in which our civil society can be supported to support communities uh, in conflict um, and in humanitarian situations. Um, and that is something that is, you know, um, relatively novel, right, because states generally like to uh, run and manage their own uh, development policy, their own um, foreign policy, but I think we need to see a, a much more uh, sort of devolved foreign policy strategy if we are actually going to be effective um, at the community level and challenging mm-hmm. some of those norms and structures um, which uh, you know which actually escalate uh, into conflict. So just on before I go to you, Lisa, just in terms of the this feminist foreign policy that Lisa touched on beforehand. So you're advocating that as part of that, they make better use of the diaspora communities and provide them with greater voice and also provide them with a more structured opportunity to give to provide that voice? Yeah, well, I mean, I think feminist foreign policy is, is hugely important, right? And it comes out of the women, peace and security agenda. And it should suggest an alternative way of bringing peace and security. And uh, it, you know, I was uh, recently just looking at the German uh, feminist foreign policy. They have 10 guidelines there. And one of them is that um, that all humanitarian aid, it should be 100% kind of, avail- you know, really... Um, uh, you know, benefiting women and men. And I'm thinking there, well, actually we've got humanitarian organisations who operate under principles of neutrality and impartiality and often don't provide, um, for example, re- resources or support to women in terms of their mm. needs for, mm. for example, sexual and reproductive yes, uh, yes. rights. That would be one example. But 
humanitarian organizations in Afghanistan who can no longer employ women no. to deliver aid mm. can no longer access women. So, you know, that th- this, this is actually a real challenge. So how are you going to actually realize uh, the gender-inclusive protection, the 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 gender-responsive relief and recovery in the context of gender apartheid regimes if you don't develop other strategies, which is not just state-to-state strategies there. So I think, you know, feminist foreign policy is a, is the, we are looking at the early stages in some countries of developing a much more political strategy to tackle women's insecurity and rights. And that is important because we know that the countries that treat women um, as secondary human beings are also the countries that sustain levels of conflict, um, which affects us all. Hmm. Lisa, your thoughts, what more needs to be done at the international level and also here in Australia at the domestic level? So I think Jackie there is absolutely spot on in terms of the disconnect, I think, sometimes around the the advocacy that we see on this normative level versus the way that we actually apply women, peace and security sort of principles to uh, how countries engage in their foreign policy. And and as she's rightly noted there, I think the Afghanistan context has demonstrated that Mm. political expediency will often immediately trade off a number of these commitments on women, peace, and security. You can have a you can you can have a country yep. that said that we we stand behind this, but then there'll be a calculation that's made that well, this is something we can consider later down the road. It's not actually relevant or applicable to what we need to do now. This idea that we've got the right people at the table and it doesn't need to involve women, and I think that's a core challenge that we have is first and foremost convincing people. Uh, in the national security community and and also more broadly those engaged in developing government policy, that this isn't just an add-on that is sort of considered later down the road but is something that is actually core and integral to the work that governments do and the way that they engage with Mm. other organisations, civil society organisations that underpin and uphold, I think, trust in these institutions. And this is sort of where you see this, I think, filtering down um, impact. I mean, we've just had here... The, the US government has held its second um, summit of democracy. Uh, they've been talking about the importance of women's participation in these processes and how it underpins democracies. And I think this all goes back to the points that Jackie was making there around sort of gender equality being a measure of sort of how peaceful societies are. These things are all inherently linked. Uh, and I think so if we're considering how we can improve the way that these things are implemented, I'd say first and foremost it's about recognising that you can't separate these issues and decide that we'll consider one later, but first and foremost we have to deal with the pressing hard security issue that's in front of us. And I think that's something that's really timely for Australia and other partners and, and the region to be considering as we look at real what might be termed hard security considerations in terms of our future and commitments of funding and what that means for the for the longer term. So I think that's one point I'd make. The second one I'd make is I think what we've seen throughout the pandemic with COVID, uh, with concerns around health security, uh, with concerns around sort of the evolution of different threats that we see either in cyberspace or technology, is this idea that threats to our national security do not stop at the border. And so this idea that we should only be looking outward, which is traditionally what national action plans have done, um, you know, from countries like Australia and and, and sort of other um, traditionally Western or European countries to say, 
women, peace and security is something that we need to consider in conflict settings. Uh, what we actually need to be doing a little bit more of is thinking about, well, this idea that threats to our security are just something that's beyond our borders is not not the case anymore. And yep. there are things that we need to yes. consider uh, domestically that impact a diverse range of women uh, and a diverse range of society uh, in terms of threats to our security. And I think this is something that we're starting to see an evolution in thinking at, in the moment in the way that national action plans are developed. Uh, we know, for instance, that sort of the links between cybersecurity and the digital environment haven't been fully explored in terms of the implications that that's likely to have for women, peace and security, uh, and more broadly in terms of, I guess, issues such as women's political participation. So if we consider issues around elections and, and so on, um, there's a lot of challenges that we face that I think it'll be inherent that Australia and other advocates for women, peace and security consider going forward. I was at a Pathways to Politics launch here in Canberra a, a few um, weeks ago and one of the points that was made there was that female participation in in politics uh, is being limited by the fact it, to the point that one-third of women don't want to go into politics, do not want to engage in our democracy because they are scared away by what could happen on social media. Mm. So it has a significant disincentive even when women even when women are considering a, a career in politics. Mm. Uh, basically, it all becomes too hard, too vile, too abusive, and they don't want to take part in it, which is a, in terms of that participation pillar, it's a significant challenge, and I'm sure it's not unique to Australia. No, not at all. And I, I think that's, um, that's the significance of the women, peace and security agenda is I think it recognises that some of the, the, the real challenges for women in participating in the so-called high politics realm of peace and security, some of those challenges are actually very similar, the, you know, the world, uh, worldwide. And, and I think, um, you know, we sometimes, we sometimes live under the illusion, especially, um, as we've been living through a period of relative stability. Um, of, of that we, we are seeing greater progress, right? And definitely in my lifetime, we've seen, you know, massive progress, especially in women's participation, political participation and leadership. Um, and we don't consider that there might be real setbacks to that, a backlash to that. But that's actually what we're seeing in the research. And even this week, I saw a brilliant paper, I think, by a young Australian uh, in uh, the journal Nature, and it's actually analysing the Twitter space on Hillary Clinton um, and the, you know, before she stood for president and then in the run up to her election during the campaign and after. And it basically shows the massive explosion of hate speech against her during the campaign. Um, and, and after. So, you know, it wasn't there prior to her sort of saying, I'm going to go for president. And I think, um, I think that we can see this, um, you know, in a range of different societies that the, the explicit targeting of women who are politically active, who, who speak out often on behalf of a group or, or a movement, um, and often, you know, for greater democracy, um, or for, you know, a peace settlement. Um, and so, in other words, if we want to actually achieve more democratic and more peaceful outcomes, we've actually got to address this um, this violence against women, which is also a significant barrier for for all of us in realizing you know those those societal outcomes. And that with the transnational cybersphere, uh, we can see how you know certain misogynistic 
individuals and groups in one country and one realm can actually influence the discourse and the narrative in another society. And I think New Zealand is such a fascinating case in that regard. The kind of misogyny targeted at Jacinda Ardern was something that you had never seen before in that country. And that was obviously all around the alliance of anti-vaxxers, far-right, um, and, you know, a whole range of different kind of discourses, but very much being powered out of the United States. And and then landing there, not just in the online space in, in New Zealand and, and specifically targeting uh, the Prime Minister, but that actually translated into an occupation of the parliamentary grounds in that country, you know, for over a month where they literally had to get the military to pe- clear people off. So, you know, and, and this is a country which is one of the you know most peaceful democracies. I think it was number one in the peace index, global peace index uh, a few years ago. So if we see that in that kind of a place, we've got to take seriously that online, uh, you know, s- sphere, that, that cyber insecurity that, that Lisa mentioned. Mm. And we saw it just recently too, the points you make um, in terms of Stephanie Copas Campbell, mm. what began in the US, and I'm not going to name names, uh, uh, ricocheted right across the world, but also in the media here in Australia. And uh, it did have me scratching my head as to when I just thought this this agenda's been around for 23 years. Haven't you heard about this? Yeah. So, it, but it's just the level of hate and the fact that it's sexualized. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was such, I mean, Stephanie Copas Campbell was so brave in that instance where she actually used that example to yep. show, yes, actually, this is why uh, gender equality is so important. This is why security is an issue. Yes. Um, because look, you know, look what happened to me when I spoke out about these things. Look at the level of targeting online. Yep, and uh, and we all admire her for that because uh, quite often uh, women are basically forced into silence. It just becomes so horrible and personal and, as I said, sexualized and hateful that it all just becomes too hard. Yes, and think about those countries where, you know, the cultural norms and stigma associated with that kind of, you know, that kind of uh, naming, that kind of uh, online violence is is even greater than it might be in a mm. society like Australia. And so you know, like the the compounding impacts. If you're hearing in Canberra that you know a third of young women don't want to go into politics mm-hmm. um, because of what they've how they've seen, um, not just other women politicians, but politically active women um, standing out against sexual and gender based violence and in fact their own rape. Um, if, yes, if, you know they see that. I mean that that's that is uh, you know the logical uh response or consequence and and that's very troubling um for the future of australian democracy um and security well it's it's very troubling in the fact that first up um women are forced into silence and and secondly they're forced out of participation in their own democracy that's very troubling and I think equally that they're being pushed out of some of these um, digital spaces or online spaces where we see a lot of the future conversation happening. And, and exactly, not only that, that we we see uh, that there may be ways that it'll be completely, you know, we're talking about artificial intelligence at the moment and the future of that, and we're already seeing instances where this is being manipulated to create uh, falsehoods and lies uh, that are being used as forms of abuse, uh, which are likely to have drastic ramifications for uh, not only women's participation, but sort of elections and our democratic institutions. 
So just to conclude on that note, uh, Jackie, I'll start with you. Are you optimistic about the Women, Peace and Security agenda and what it can achieve? Well, look, I'm always an optimist, Gay, and I, I do <laughs> I do feel like sometimes naming the problem and and um and I think and recognizing that, you know, there are, you know, that these problems are transnational and that they do mm. require collective mm. action and they do require, you know, um the uh, the activism not only of civil society organizations, diaspora, but also of governments. Um and I think that the coming together of these different groups. Um, is is really really important and significant, and I do find I mean a couple of things I would point to as hopeful. I see some really important um, and hopeful developments in our region. So I just would say, like in a country like Indonesia, I see how they've really taken up the women, peace, and security agenda, and women themselves, uh, you know, quite at the local level, have have actually shaped their the whole country's approach to the prevention of violent extremism. And um, and have really brought in women's leadership at the community level into those frameworks, and I think that's very exciting um, because I think they use that opportunity to show their government, yeah, like if you don't if you don't involve us, you'll actually see more women themselves being radicalized and recruited into violent groups. So that's I think that local action is really important, um, and that's a change because you know, for example, in in the Philippines. Another place in our region we saw during the Marawi siege that there were local women who early warned uh, the stockpiling of weapons um, of, by mm. the ISIS affiliate and no one listened to them. But actually yeah, now yeah. we are seeing, you know, more women in the region also speaking, you know, speaking up um, and being part of, you know, the, the formulation of national action plans and so on. So I think that's really positive. I think the feminist foreign policy movement is really positive mm. and I see it as coming out of women, peace and security agenda. I see it as a much more political, explicitly political move um, by countries. Yes, they 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 want uh, you know they they see the benefits of, of of branding their foreign policy in this way. But I think it's also signalling, uh, you know, that that the countries are prepared to stand uh, alongside um, you know key mo- movements uh, worldwide and within their countries. They're going to stand up for women's rights and inclusion, and that might mean taking, you know, stronger political stands. And um, and I think that's that's what's needed. And you know, whilst um, the Swedish uh, government decided to uh, rescind their the name feminist for their foreign policy, I mean, I expect that they probably will continue in that line. But it's great to see Germany uh, standing up there, and I look forward to seeing how that. Uh, policy is implemented, um, you know, to in the recovery uh, and the end to the the Russia's and war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that, a, that's what we've got to keep the eye on of how we implement these principles in practice mm. and how those eight million women and children who are uh, have been fought displaced from their country, how they will be in, involved in the recovery of that society, and how those countries committed to feminist foreign policy. Um, will be working toward uh, that end of more, you know, of of, of more equal uh, and lasting uh, lasting peace um, in every global region. Yeah, the language is a very strong commitment to the principles. And Lisa, are you optimistic? Are you hopeful? 
I think you have to be optimistic and hopeful in in terms of looking at where the future's going on some of these things. I mean, I think like Jackie mentioned there, seeing the innovation, the role that that particularly youth civil society organisations are engaged in around some of these issues, not just in terms of the way that they're consulting and engaging on platforms, whether they be at the UN or in different institutions, um, but also the tools that they're developing to communicate with different audiences are really essential. Um, I, I think a core part of it sort of going forward will be ensuring that this communication about why women, peace and security matters uh, more broadly needs to continue so that it's not just sort of a a niche setting of those involved in the peace and security conversation, but we see that conversation happening more broadly to translate why it matters at the individual level, why having Mm. these these different pillars implemented has a benefit not only for women and girls um, but men and boys and those that are gender diverse in in terms of sort of the implications that it has. The broader community. The broader community. The broader society. And I think importantly it also involves a degree of accountability as well. So this idea that it's not just on the shoulders of of women necessarily that have to take forward the women, peace and security agenda but there's an expectation if a country like Australia wants to be seen as an an advocate, uh, as it has been, around women, peace and security, that this is a responsibility for all those involved in that policy and that it filters down and it's not just for um, a few that might be designated as sort of the leads or the focal points. And I think if we can get some of those things right uh, and and continue that that engagement and, and the points that Jackie has outlined, then I think we do have reasons to be really optimistic about the future. Great. Thank you. We'll leave it there, but um, thank you so much, Jackie, for joining us uh, from Melbourne and also to Lisa from you from joining us from Washington. It's been a terrific podcast. We could keep talking about each element that you raised for hours, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Gay. Thanks to you both. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skrætter alle de der podcast og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.